Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. The RCMP in Canada, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they're basically the equivalent of the FBI in the United States. They are our federal police. And they don't make mistakes. They're one of the best in the world. They're the Queen's Guard. They lost evidence. They lost crime scene photographs. They've misplaced this and they've misplaced that. So now the mystery is, if you found what you claim you found... Where's the evidence? On the night of November 29, 1980, Granger Taylor, a local of Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada, drives off into a blinding rain in his pink truck. He has told his friends, family, and even people in the town of Duncan that he plans to rendezvous with aliens who will take him on a 42-month journey around the galaxy. The next day, on November 30th, Granger and his truck are nowhere to be found. Years pass, and most assume his disappearance will forever remain a mystery. However, six years later, in March 1986, a curious discovery provides a clue as to what possibly happened to Granger on that stormy night. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, The Sudden Departure of Granger Taylor, Part 2. It was my father actually brought it to my attention. We were sitting in the living room, and he was reading the newspaper. Granger Taylor's close friend, Robert Keller, still remembers the day when he heard about the discovery. He brought it, he goes, oh, they found Granger's truck. And I went, really? Where? So he said, well, I found it on Mount Prevost. There's a blast site. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, apparently uh, they found the pieces, parts and pieces of the truck in a crater. On March 20th, 1986, municipal work crews are thinning an area of growth on Mount Prevost, a few miles northwest of the town of Duncan, where Granger's family lives. A crew member thinks he sees signs of an explosion in the forest and reports it to a supervisor. Police are called to the scene and quickly agree that an explosion has taken place. In the newspaper, I believe they said it was a blue truck. Well, as soon as they said that, my dad said, well, they're doing an investigation on Granger and maybe they should be doing an investigation on who really owns that truck because Granger's truck was clearly Pepto-Bismol pink. And they insisted that they found something, either a license plate or a um, VIN number plate, like that little aluminum thing that goes on your dash. They found that embedded in a tree. And that number was uh, traced back as Granger's truck. Corporal Chris Manso of the RCMP confirms that the truck did belong to Granger Taylor, 
Though Corporal Manso wasn't involved in the original investigation, he agreed to talk about the case and the discovery of the truck. It was very fortunate that that site was found, um, especially as soon as it was. If that site was found today, 34 years later, it would have been completely overgrown. Somebody driving by or ATVing by or hiking by, if they were to come across that, it likely would not have looked very different than it would have weeks before uh, the blast site had occurred. That area of British Columbia, especially Vancouver Island, you know, there are a lot of tall trees, temperate rainforest, areas that I've been to where I would think no one's been down this road in many, many years. There are lots of plane crashes that have never been found, sites where people have gone and lived for 25 years in the bush. Um, there's a lot of places in BC where people want to go and get themselves lost, and they're very successful at it. Tyler Hooper, a British Columbia journalist, has investigated the Granger-Taylor case for several years, digging into all the bizarre details. So the, the blast site, from my understanding, was like it had a radius of like two, 300 feet. I think at one point they said it ultimately spread to like 600 feet and that some of the debris from the truck was as high as 60 feet in the trees, which is insane. Like that just seems like a huge radius and circumference to have for a blast site. Also, um, there was a bunch of obviously just mechanical parts lying about, a bit of an engine block left that was actually, I think, almost a 100 feet away from the initial crater. And then they found, I believe it was some sort of part of a wheel up in a tree, like 60 feet high, that had basically been blown up in there and embedded itself into the tree. The RCMP's Chris Manso confirms that clues at the blast site suggest someone was in or near the truck at the time of the blast. Some human remains were found, and there was a piece of clothing, I believe it was a sweater, that was identified by a family member as uh, likely belonging to Mr. Taylor. After my father read the newspaper thing, I immediately had to get a hold of Mrs. Taylor and ask her what was going on. Mrs. Taylor never, ever, even once said anything about, I identified his sweater to say it was definitely him. When we had that discussion that day, she had told me that the police were doing the investigation and she was told by them that it was quite possibly Granger and that they were going to close the case. Now, again, I always have to question if his body and his bones and his truck and all of this stuff barely survived, how a wool sweater in the Pacific Northwest climate could survive after six years to be able to be identified as his, it makes no sense that they'd be able to identify that. So the coroner's inquest officially ruled that due to circumstantial evidence found at the site that Granger succumbed to accidental massive injuries due to or as a consequence of the explosion. So that's the official version from the coroner's inquest. From the RCMP's point of view and from the BC coroner's point of view, he ended up being a missing person who was later recovered and the file was concluded. So since then, the RCMP has done very little, if any, follow-up on that file only because no new further information has come forward and that that would be what would forward this investigation. Despite the RCMP ruling, 
Robert Keller is not convinced that the explosion on Mount Prevost proves that Granger died in the blast, or that it was even Granger's truck. Do I believe that they found Granger's truck on the mountain? Absolutely not. I don't want to believe it, and I won't believe it, until someone proves to me that they found his bones. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. For Robert Keller, one of the most mysterious aspects of Granger's disappearance has to do with the color of the truck that exploded on Mount Prevost. I don't believe Granger ever owned a blue Datsun pickup. When he left my house on the day he disappeared, he was driving that pink truck. Throughout the police report, investigators consistently refer to Granger's truck as a blue Datsun pickup. But Robert distinctly remembers painting the truck Pepto-Bismol pink from its original brown color. Journalist Tyler Hooper believes he has an explanation. Here's my understanding about the truck. I'm fairly certain it was pink when it went missing. The issue is then, yes, why do the police in the report and so on keep referring to the truck being blue? And I think that was the color that the truck was registered in. So I think, you know, when you register your car, there's a make, model, and color. So there would have been a color on the forms that Granger filled out when he put his insurance into ICBC. And I think because the truck was exploded on the mountain that the paint would have burned off. That's the impression that I got. I mean, the paint they were probably using to paint cars back then was probably really oil heavy and was just set to burn off. So I don't think you could have told in person what color the truck was. So they defaulted to what was on the insurance form. Aside from the truck, Tyler also uncovered details about the human remains that were found at the blast site. The biggest findings is the two bones that are found, and I believe they're quite big. I mean, I think they're one of them six inches long by one inch thick, and I believe one of them proved to be the bone on the upper arm. And they found the two bones, and one of them was broken due to the, the force of the explosion that the coroner determined. And uh, they were determined to be human by a pathologist. They uh, unfortunately couldn't be tested for DNA because that was a new, new thing at the time. And from my understanding that the Duncan RCMP wouldn't have had that sort of technology. So that's too bad. Since DNA tests were not conducted, Robert is not willing to assume that the bones were the remains of his friend Granger. The bone fragments that they found were found inconclusive for whether it was even him or not. I don't even think they could say it was a male or female. But somehow the coroner said that, oh, well, it's Granger. <laughs> it's really, sorry. Sorry, I have to laugh at that because he closed the case saying that he felt that it was Granger. You know, and it was a bone fragment that was inconclusive to whether it was even male or female or, you know, like, oh my God. But maybe that's how they did things back then. DNA technology was not available in 1986. 
But today, the bones could be tested to determine whether they do indeed belong to Granger Taylor. Unfortunately, the bones have gone missing. The RCMP in Canada, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they're basically the equivalent of the FBI in the United States. They are our federal police, and they don't make mistakes. They're one of the best in the world. They're the Queen's Guard. Even when they destroy evidence because it's no longer needed, they know where it went. We destroyed the evidence because it was no longer needed. So it was burnt, it was trashed, it was done whatever the police do to evidence that's no longer needed. But that's not what I was told. It wasn't destroyed. It was lost or misplaced. So now the mystery is, if you found what you claim you found, where's the evidence? According to the RCMP, it's unclear where the bone fragments are today. Policies change and procedures change over time. And this was 40 years ago. Um, I know in files now, found bodies or deceased people that becomes uh, the property of the coroner's service. And then the coroner's service will offer those to family for proper burial or disposal as they see fit in line with their wishes. As for what happened to the bone fragments that were found at that scene, the family members would likely know. And if those family members don't know, then I couldn't speak to where they are these days. Without the bone fragments and a DNA test, it can't be proven who died in the explosion. But if it was Granger, another question arises. How did Granger manage to cause such a massive explosion? Friends and family recall that Granger had access to dynamite, but did he have enough dynamite to turn an entire truck into just fragments? He did have access to dynamite because they used to blow stumps up on the property to expand their fields. What I do remember is I, I know how much dynamite he had because I'd been in the shed. I had seen the dynamite and he had basically one case of dynamite. It was already an open case. So, you know, he had used a portion of that case of dynamite on stumps and whatnot. And I, when I went to see his mother that day after she got back from Hawaii, I wandered around the yard because she thought, well, maybe there's something out there that would tell you where he is. So, you know, I went and kind of looked in the ship and was looking around. And I, now I'm not going to say 100%, but I'm 99.99% sure. I looked into that shed and that box of dynamite was still in there. So unless he purchased some just the day before he left, which there would be records for because they don't just sell dynamite to people without keeping a record. Unless he purchased some a few days or a day before he left, the dynamite that Granger did have was still at the property well, well after he had disappeared. If Granger did have enough dynamite for such an intense blast, was the explosion intentional or just an unfortunate accident? In the police report, the absence of evidence of intention led investigators to rule that the explosion was accidental. I know in my career, I have definitely come across dynamite that was very old, what they call sweaty dynamite that is unstable. Um, and I have also seen people throw sticks of dynamite that have just landed and it doesn't explode like it does in the movies. It's not that unstable. Um, it's actually one of the excellent qualities of dynamite is that it, it is stable for quite some time. Now, whether... You know, maybe there could have been an accidental fire. Maybe there was a spark. Maybe there's something that would ignite that dynamite. But I've never come across anything where there was an accidental dynamite discharge. 
but I've only been a police officer for 15 years. Journalist Tyler Hooper believes an accidental explosion would have been very uncharacteristic of Granger. I find it hard to believe that Granger would, you know, accidentally set off dynamite. And the other question is, if he did, what was he trying to do otherwise? Just blow up his truck and then hike down and, and disappear into the brush in the middle of the night? Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, if there was a storm, I could say, okay, you're driving up a mountain in a truck. It's bumpy. It's logging roads. You've got dynamite. Sure, dynamite gets wet. It becomes unstable and it can blow up. Sure. And I could believe that with or without the storm, you know, if it's raining. But I just think dealing with tools and machines and dynamite does not seem like something he would be careless with. To take a bunch of dynamite and drive up the mountain in the middle of the night speaks to me that it was more purposely set off than it being an actual accident. Now, the, the question for me is, why? Why set it off? What was Granger's motive behind it? And to me, that's always been the lingering question is what was his you know, train of thought that night and what was his motive for taking the dynamite and driving up Mount Provost? There are a lot of theories when it comes to Granger's disappearance. I mean, a quick overview, I've heard everything from obviously him being abducted by aliens, him being a secret agent for an agency like the CIA, him, you know, moving down to South America. I've heard people say, you know, he was some sort of drug mule for some organization, which seems so ridiculous to me. There's an abundance of theories and a lot of them are outright crazy in my opinion. I mean, but there are a few that like any rabbit hole, when you go down, you can try and make some sense of, but um, you know, there's not very many uh, when it comes to Granger, in my opinion. Robert Keller has heard his own share of rumors about what happened to his friend. One of the theories that I've heard, people have said that he's been, you know, taken by the government because of his genius and his skills and building things. And, uh, you know, which of course I, I kind of go, yeah, yeah, you know, that, if the government really needed somebody like that, you know, why not? They took Werner von Braun or whatever from Germany. Why not take Granger from Canada? So that one I kind of believed. It's it's That's a possibility, you know. And uh, Granger was just giving us the alien story to kind of cover it up. Although Granger was not known to lie to people. Maybe he would if he felt that he had to, to protect people. Now, Granger had a lot of friends down in Colombia. And he did speak, you know, a couple of years before the alien thing that he was actually considering on moving down to Colombia and living with some friends down there and, you know, a lot of money to be made down there. So I have to say, yeah, that's possible too, which would tell me that the real truck was driven off a pier into the ocean somewhere and uh, he just flew to Colombia. I mean, crossing the border and who would have checked even back then? You know, you could cross a border just by saying you were Canadian. You didn't even have to show ID. Yeah, I'm from Canada. Okay, have a nice day. That's kind of how easy it was to cross borders back then. And there you go. And he may still be alive down there listening to this podcast now. Chris Manceau of the RCMP was only three years old when Granger disappeared. But he wishes he had been involved in the investigation at the time so he could ask some questions of his own. I wish I knew Granger prior to this event. I would think I would have a better understanding of the totality of the circumstances. Unfortunately, that's just not possible. I've dealt with many people who were in a mental crisis and they always have an answer for every question. You can't convince somebody 
of something that doesn't exist when they're that sure of it. How would someone at that time convince Granger that there were no aliens? He was that sure of it as well. It's entirely possible that Mr. Granger went up to that remote location waiting to be contacted or met with by these extraterrestrials. Whether that happened or not, difficult to say, but maybe he sat there for several days waiting. Maybe he took uh, food and provisions with him. And when that didn't materialize, maybe he didn't want to come back down to society feeling like he was going to let everyone down and admitting that that was incorrect. Maybe that's when the explosion happened. Tyler Hooper has his own theory about what happened to Granger that stormy night. Anything Granger put his mind to, he could do. And I think he was so talented and so gifted at creating um, these machines. And I do think it was an expression of him too. Like, that's the other thing. I think when he did these seemingly crazy things, like put a boat engine in a car, I think it was kind of his signature and his way of expressing himself, you know, to himself and to the world. And I think that might've been really lonely for him at times. I think, you know, he did, you know, obviously rub off on people like Robert, but I think ultimately I don't think Granger had a lot of intimacy in his life. I don't think he necessarily felt very strong connections with people. And so I think he may or may not have created another world, you know, that being space and, you know, UFOs and aliens. And I think he may have used that as a way for him to escape. And I think ultimately what happened was that whether it was through, you know, through his own actions and his own will that he drove up to that mountain that night and decided that he was going to try and get to space to get away or he was suffering from some sort of episode that led him to believe that was going to happen but he ended up blowing himself up i I believe regardless granger wanted to get away i do still believe until someone can show me more evidence to show otherwise i do think granger perished on that mountain and i think between the note getting his estate and his will in order you know a few months prior it all speaks to me, Granger saying goodbye in, in one form or another. And I don't think he had any intention of coming back. For Robert, though, the idea that Granger may have taken his own life runs counter to everything he knew about his friend. Granger didn't believe in suicide. He used to always call it the coward's way out. In his way, it was the journey. It's not the destination, it's the journey. And uh, you can make this world anything you want it to be if you just put a little imagination and try, right? And he was he was so, I don't know, the best way to put it, I guess, is he was so into life. Like, anybody and everybody that knew him will tell you the same thing, that Granger was not suicidal and he would have never taken his life. I mean, he was making really good money that he was bringing back to his family. He loved his mother to death. I mean, that woman, she was his god. I mean, he loved his dog. He loved the projects that he was building. He loved the the spotlight that he was being put in. It wasn't a huge spotlight, but he was being put in a spotlight because he built a plane and they, they put it in the fall fair. And uh, so... I couldn't picture anything going back all those years that would all of a sudden make him say, okay, you know what? I hate my life now and I want to end it. That's just mind boggling that anybody could even consider that. But uh, again, you know, I knew him, they didn't. And uh, I don't believe it's fact. Of all the theories about Granger's disappearance, Robert believes that the most likely answer is also the simplest. 
Well, I believe Granger will come back. Granger is going to come back and he's going to contact one of my family members, whether it be my grandchildren or my grandchildren's grandchildren. But I believe that when he does come back, he's going to find them and contact them and explain to them that he was a uh, a very good, close, personal friend to their grandfather or great-grandfather, you know, and then tell his story and, you know, what it was like out there, you know, going beyond anywhere that people on Earth have even fathomed to go. Granger's sister, Gay, still keeps his room just as he left it on the off chance that he does return one day. But the room also serves as a place to remember the life of her unique brother, Granger Taylor, the mechanical genius and the perpetual stargazer. Sometimes I feel sad, but then I think maybe wherever he's at, he's probably in a good place, so I don't get too sad. Maybe he did take off with the aliens, who knows? It's too bad we couldn't interview the aliens, eh? <laughs> that would be good. So from the RCMP's point of view, this file has been resolved. And at this point, there's no further investigation on that file. Now, that's not to say that if Granger didn't show up one day and walk down Main Street, we would uh, definitely have some questions for him. But until that happens, uh, we're continuing the file concluded. If you have any information about the mysterious disappearance of Granger Taylor, please go to unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. What concerns me about this killer is the ability to inflict those assaults on a woman and two precious girls and those two little boys and not speak a word about it. That's completely narcissistic and sociopathic. That's what concerns me. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenick, Courtney Ennis, and Paige Heimson. The story producer for this episode was Cynthia Bowles, and it was edited by Ryan Dan. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of Unsolved Mysteries. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland.
visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.